0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number nine of the Becoming a Gentleman podcast. I am your host, Christopher Linkenbach, and I am a relationship coach here in Austin, Texas, and I help men to reconnect to their masculinity, to build confidence, and to understand how to cultivate healthy and loving relationships. If you would like to schedule a free coaching call, you can click the link in the description below, and we can start chatting Today, we are going to be talking a lot about um, sort of everything, but today's episode title is going to be Dissecting Ego and Healing Trauma. And today we have a quotation by none other than Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson basically tells us today, a harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has it under voluntary control. And so today, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Brian Mendez. Brian Mendez is an absolute brother. He's a part of the men's group, the Conscious Men's Tribe that we run here in Austin, Texas. And if you would like details about joining that group, feel free to reach out to me directly on Instagram or Facebook. Um, So Brian today is, he's kind of doing a lot. He's a creative director. He is a, he's big into jujitsu. He is a fourth stripe blue belt he is also a massage therapist and he's an individual who's been doing the work he's been doing the work for about 10 years um, pretty in depth he's discovered a bunch of different healing modalities that he's been using and a bunch of different therapies that he has experienced along the way and he's also currently writing a book called take it or leave it which is basically talking about his journey from being born into trauma and then also making decisions based off of that trauma in his life so without further ado thank you Brian, so much for being on the show. And would you just uh, just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what's going on?
1: Sure. Um, so my name is Brian. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from New York and I was born uh, on Long Island, Sunnybrook, Long Island. And um, right from the get go, I was born uh, three months premature and uh, the umbilical cord was wrapped around my throat. And um, I was born into trauma. Uh, my mom, had to have an emergency C-section and um, the doctors didn't know if I was gonna make it. And when I was born, I was born at three pounds, two ounces. And uh, I was in an incubator for about a little over a month. Um, So I never had that uh, nurturing um, feel of my mom for, for that first month of my life. And it's just interesting because I feel as though it played a significant role throughout my life. And it still does. Um, And it's only till now that I'm kind of realizing that uh, a lot of the decisions that I've made throughout my life were based on not just that trauma. And I'll get into some other trauma later on in life. But that was my first uh, experience feeling that trauma. Um, And so, yeah. um, um, You know,
0: I think if you would talk about how literally being thrust into the world, into trauma, how that has affected your life.
1: Yeah, so when, um, when, the doc- when I was actually born, the doctors had to cut a actual th- a hole in my throat. And so uh, it was called tracheotomy. And that played such a significant role in body shaming issues, um, how I interacted with other children, um, developmental issues there um, at, at school, on the playground, um, I always felt like I wasn't able to truly be myself. I felt like, I don't know, I wasn't able to, uh, there was times when I didn't wanna to go to pool parties because I didn't want anyone to see the scar on my neck. And that scar was so ingrained in, in who I was as a person and um, it just held me back from so much. And, But it also was a beautiful thing because it taught me about empathy. And what it was like to suffer, um, and I think that was my first lesson in empathy, and, and what it meant for other people, kind of going through their own things, that people had, uh, you know, things that, that were holding them back, mm. and so it made me realize that I wasn't the only one doing, going through it.
0: Yeah. So one of my absolute favorite things to talk about is shame, and I'm curious what that means to you, what that word means, and how you've healed or have understood it in your life.
1: I think the, the the more I do things like this, the more I get my story out there, the more I realize that I'm not the only person on the face of the earth, which sounds ridiculous at this point, uh, going through um, addiction, going through body shaming issues. Um, and I just want to point out that I think that men particularly, it's not talked enough or talked about enough that that we do go through body shaming issues i think it's widely known that women have uh you know negative beliefs about their body and uh social media it like perpetuates that and i think it's 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 important that men start bringing up these issues as well
0: yeah i remember even just being young and i was kind of a chubby kid growing up right so i definitely sort of have that shame that i've carried with me that is kind of just like molded me to try and become a better version of myself and Um, not in a good way and an unhealthy way in terms of being like a perfectionist, right? So there is that body shaming that we see in men. And I think something else that you touched on about shame in general is that shame is an emotion of hiding, right? When we are shameful of something, we want to hide it. We don't want the world to see it. And so like you mentioned, a way that we can start healing that shame is to start showing it and to start revealing that shame and to start telling our stories, right? And I'm curious, what was it that kind of was the catalyst this sort of got you on this journey of self-discovery
1: um i think if i had to put my finger on it i think i was going through a lot of jobs i was going through a lot of relationships with women um, i was going through a lot of friendships and there was a common thread throughout all of these things that i was losing the jobs i was losing women and i was losing friends and um I, I i was i I did a lot of blaming other people for my problems um I always thought it was everybody else who was doing something to me and I realized that I was the common thread I was the common denominator, and I was the one who with the with the issue and because of the shame because of the trauma, I developed a world where I was the center of my own universe and nobody really else, nobody mattered. And it was, it was, a um, until I met my ex-wife, um, in 2005, um, she was going through therapy and she introduced therapy to me. And, um, and I think I started in 2007 or 2008 and it was just like, something just blew open in my mind. I was like, Oh my God, you mean actually other people exist in this world and other people are going through everything. And, um, I'm not the only one, and um, other people's feelings matter. And the interesting thing when I first started therapy was that my first therapist he asked me to um, tell him how I'm feeling, and I said, "What do you mean? You know?" And he's like, "Well, you know, do you know what you're feeling right now?" And I said, "Not really." And he says, "Well, tell me some emotions," and I was like. Stumped For some reason, I couldn't, for the life of me, think about how I was feeling at any given moment. And so he wrote down a list of feelings, happy, sad, tired, lonely, scared, all these things. And he gave it to me and he said, anytime you're going through life, look at this list and identify what am I feeling at this very moment? And that, again, blew the doors open for me. I was like, oh my God. It, it started making me realize that at any given moment I'm feeling happy and um, you know we'll talk about addiction in, in, a, in a few minutes but um, I'm feeling happy so I'm re- resorting to escaping or I'm feeling sad I'm resorting to, to escaping so just basic emotions um, were were a lot of a lot of the catalysts for um, uh the behaviors that I was doing with my jobs or my, or my friendships or the relationships that I was in. And I just didn't know, I didn't know why I was behaving the way I was behaving.
0: Mm -hmm. When you, so when you bring up the concept of addiction, how has that played a role in your life?
1: It's played a huge, a huge role because it's something that a, I don't want to talk about um, openly. Um, it's, um, because it's, it's, you know, if I was addicted to alcohol, it'd be fine. If I was addicted to meth, it'd be okay. Cause it, you know, there's so many things out there right now that are talking about these addictions and, um, you know, I was addicted to sex and porn and you just don't, it's, it's beginning more to be socially accepted, but in the nineties and two thousands, it wasn't at all talked about. And it was very, Uh, faux pas and there was a stigma about it Mm. so yeah um what was the question
0: well i think it's very important that we just even like touch upon that idea of recognizing that sex addiction is real and something that you and i even talked about before this podcast is the idea of love addiction as well Mm. right there is this inherent addiction inside of men that goes towards women and it comes in a variety of different ways validation seeking through sex through escapism right and a lot of it kind of is shame induced and it's all validation seeking and it really is based upon the relationships that we had with our mothers and how we gave and received love or did not have a relationship with our mothers right if we had a lack of a relationship with them then that obviously is going to play itself in the role of our relationships and so the way in which we receive love from our mothers is now how we're trying to receive love from our romantic partners. And it's sure. not fair to them because these women, although they are capable of loving as a mother, that is not their role to you in this relationship. And not only that, but it resets the dynamic. So now there's a power dynamic in which you there's a mother and son relationship. Sure. Right.
1: Yeah. So, um, I could talk about my own experience with my mom growing up and especially as a sick infant, um, and having an older sister, she's about four years older. Um, being born into that, uh, experience, my mom was very overbearing. Uh, everything I did was, was watched. Um, my sister uh, acted as a mother as well. And it was just, um, it eventually it, it, it ruined how I interacted as an adult. Um, it was too much. It was, it was so far the other way, um, because they didn't, they didn't know whether I was going to live or die. So they, they, they um, wanted to hold me mm-hmm. and coddle and do everything for me. Mm-hmm. And I will add um, that I had another woman in my my life. She was my mom's aunt. Uh, as I was growing up, when I was born, she lived with us. My, for, for until I was 14 years old. And uh, I'll just uh, quickly talk about that because that was another piece of trauma in my life. Um, when I was 14, she was like. The end all and be all for me. I loved her very much, and um, when I was fourteen, she passed away of a heart attack in front of me, and it was very traumatic to witness that, um, to feel the feeling of abandonment, but also helplessness. Um, and I didn't know what to do when when she she died. Um, I didn't know how to um, healthily talk about death. Uh, i didn't know I didn't know what trauma was at that point, obviously, and so what I did was I turned to the to the one thing that I thought made me feel the most comfortable, which was porn and masturbation um and mm-hmm. you know when I first found porn, it was i think I was ten or eleven um I found my dad's box of like v h uh, s tapes again, which is dating me um and When I found those tapes, it was like a whole other world kind of was just introduced to me. And I was, I felt safe. I didn't feel the body shaming. I didn't feel what I I now know was the trauma. I didn't feel anything. I felt, well, I felt one thing. I felt very excited. And I felt like I knew that I was doing something wrong. Or let me rephrase that. My family told me what I was doing was wrong at that time. And, um, that's, that goes into a whole other thing of like actual education behind porn and how we as men have a responsibility to actually teach the young men coming up about the realities of porn, what it is, because they're going to watch it. You know, it's, it's a thing that's out there and it's all over the place. Sex, porn, um, you know, you look at the things on Instagram, um, being able to look at it and know what you're looking at. And I think you said in your, your podcast about porn addiction, um, you didn't really know what you were looking at and neither did I, but I knew that it was very exciting and, and something that I wanted to be in my life from that point on. Um, so addiction to porn was a way that I coped with life in every aspect, whether it be happiness, sadness, fear. Um, and it was my way, my way of running away and numbing.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And I think just like you'd mentioned that it is out there, right? 33% of the internet is pornography. And if you have a smartphone, you have a tablet, which a majority of the children have growing up, it's just a couple of clicks away. And not only that, but It's even more accessible now just scrolling through TikTok or scrolling through Instagram, right? It's not porn, but it's pretty much, you know, it's basically there. And so the access to this instant stimulation is definitely having an effect on the brain that we do not comprehend yet. I'm not a doctor, but you can definitely tell that because of the pleasure-seeking attitude and the amount of dopamine that is created in just looking at something, that this is not healthy for the brain. The brain is not supposed to see something like this on a daily basis, right? That's not how our brains have evolved the past 2 million years. That's correct. Yeah. So I think that just even that in and of itself is so just, it goes to show the difficulties with pornography, but kind of like what you're mentioning earlier, um, about not judging pornography, right? Can you speak on that?
1: Yeah. Um, I never wanted to uh, villainize uh, pornography or say pornography is bad. I think, I think with anything, you know, drinking or drugs, um, it, it depends on the person who is, uh, I, I I talked to a lot of people who smoke marijuana and they say, Oh, it makes me paranoid or it makes me very, it makes me think too deeply or, it makes me uh, scared or or, or it it doesn't give me joy. And I've heard that that's because you're, it's it's a person who's taking it and where they're at in life. I think if you are taught what porn is, the difference between what you're watching and what reality is, the difference between the sex that you're seeing on, on the screen and what lovemaking is, mm. what healthy relationships are, I think that's the difference. I think porn is not the villain. Mm. I think it's 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 um, how we use the porn and the the motives behind why why are we actually watching the porn.
0: Mm-hmm. I completely agree, and I think that some of the biggest benefits for my life from just sort of halting that issue is what you talked about, which is that lovemaking is not the same as what you're watching on these screens, right? What you're watching on these screens is two individuals who had just met each other, probably medicated on alcohol, on drugs, and just smashing bodies into each other. And that's the very first image that you get of pornography just imprinted onto your subconscious mind about what sex is. Yes. And sex is a very complex emotional roller coaster that you get to navigate with this other individual and pornography is an escape from that right pornography as you mentioned is a you don't need anything in order to watch pornography what i mean by that is it's instant validation it's instant gratification you don't need to work for it in any way and you cannot get rejected by it
1: right absolutely yeah um i also want to talk about just sex work in general. I think, you know, the people you're watching on the screen, probably more times than not, they've been traumatized and they've learned through porn what their reality is. And I, and I, again, don't want to villainize them either. And um, I think that sex work is not bad. I don't think, I don't want to villainize sex work in general. I think sex work is, is a valid way to make money. I, I think, the, the reasons you're doing it and yeah, the reasons you're doing it and the toll that it's having and the energy that it's having or the depletion of energy is having on you. I think that's where it becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, just like porn. Um, the reason you're watching porn um, for me, porn completely depletes my energy. It's not a giver of energy. It's, It's me taking from other people and me taking from myself. And I think that's where it becomes a problem in my life. Yeah.
0: And I think that that's so important to recognize as well as it's not just telling somebody like or condemning them or villainizing or judging anybody who does it, but it's like spreading the message of just recognize what is happening when you are enacting something like this, when you are going out and even for instance, just sleeping with a bunch of women as well. Is this something that is filling up your cup? It might feel exciting, but is this really something that is making your heart full? Is it giving you energy at the end of the day? And if it's not, maybe it's a behavior pattern that needs to be shifted, right? And I think that even in some cases that that overstimulation or that sort of the conquest of women to sleep with a lot of women, obviously there's an aspect of it just like experiencing and just having fun as well. But then there's another aspect of it, which is just mental masturbation, just using this other individual to get off right so Absolutely. there's that there's that whole list of life as well and i'm kind of just curious how jujitsu plays a role in your level of self-discipline in the realm of all of this as well
1: sure so i think what jujitsu has given me um aside from the con the confidence aside from the discipline um i think it's given me a level of empathy that i never realized that i even had um or even needed Um, I was personally, I was bullied when I was younger and, you know, um, I was always a nice kid, but after I was bullied, I almost wanted to bully. I wanted to make someone else feel what I was feeling. Um, and then in 2014, um, I started training, uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu in New York city and what i quickly realized once i started learning actually how to fight and how to defend myself i i didn't want to fight at all and i didn't want to so um just a little more background i used to be a mean drunk i used to get drunk and i used to want to start fights wherever i went um, because i was lacking something inside me there was a void that i was trying to fill and the same thing with porn addiction there was a void that i was trying to fill um And once I started training martial arts, that void just like went away and my heart opened to something that I never experienced before, which was like this deep love and empathy for people. Um, I don't know if it was um, because I was able to handle myself. I don't know. I don't know where this love came from. I just started loving myself. And I think that's what started emanating through martial arts to other people. Mm,
0: That is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I'm kind of curious if you could go back in time and tell your 20 year old self anything and really just kind of lay out a message to the younger generation of men out there right now. Is there anything that you'd like to say?
1: Learn to breathe. Mm. Learn that and if they, and if you, if they have experienced some sort of trauma, that is okay. Um, that there's help out there, that they're not the only ones. Um, that it's okay to fail. It's okay. It's okay to have confidence. It's okay to have an ego. But I think where we kind of lose focus as men is we let the ego take over in place of fear. And I think fear is a very large driving force behind how we operate as men and as people. I think women have the same thing with fear as well. Mm -hmm. I think men and women both operate a lot of times from a place of fear Mm -hmm. and they make decisions based on that fear. So it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be happy and it's okay to feel emotion. It's okay to cry mm. and it's okay to fail. Yeah. That's what I telling myself.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. and so valid to just hear that it's okay to have these emotions, that these things that exist inside of you are a part of the human experience and they're not something to run from. And our addiction and our pleasure seeking behaviors all stem from not wanting to feel what's happening inside of our body. And life may throw you some extremely turbulent storms and, it really is our job as men, as human beings, to be able to withstand whatever is thrown our way with equanimity and with composure. And I think that um, from my two times doing jujitsu, from that experience, that that's something that jiu-jitsu does give you, is that ability to be calm and composed in difficult situations, right?
1: Yeah. I also think, you know, we were talking the other day about the balance between masculine and feminine energy. And I think that's also something that training martial arts has given me. Because I don't only, only train with guys my size. You know, I'm six, almost 6'2", 215 pounds. I train with women who are one 110 pounds. Um, so needless to say, I'm able to overpower these women. But do I? No, because that, that's, that defeats the whole purpose. Um, you, have to, you have to learn how to um, just completely let go of the strength and use technique. And I think that's so indicative of life and parallel to life because we, you know, we come upon opposition in so many areas of life and how we, how we handle that opposition is tells so much about us. And are we going to like, you know, clash heads all the time and, uh, you know, force our will onto others? No, there's, there's a time, there may be a time for that, but there's also a time to kind of give way. And, you know, my Instagram is surrender to the flow. And I really believe, That surrendering to that flow of life and surrendering to that flow of opposition and handling things with grace. I think that's really what being a gentleman and being a man is is really all about.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that also acknowledging that surrender is not weakness, that surrender requires strength, right? And in that gentleness, in that ability to surrender requires a great depth of strength. And even to relate to Jordan Peterson's quote from earlier, it's not the ability to be, mean and vicious and it's not that acting on it. It is more. So the recognition that it exists inside of you It's a part of your human nature. There is a killer within you and to acknowledge it and then to act from a place of composure as opposed to being completely oblivious to this entire side that exists inside of you.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I always think, um, the, the, the person who screams the loudest or yells the loudest is the least confident. Um, some of the the most gentle and most confident people that you'll meet are maybe the deadliest. And um, a lot of the people that I train with are the nicest people you'll ever meet, men and women. Because they have, you know, like Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think knowing what you're capable of is there's an inherent uh, confidence that just builds in you. And you're just like, really care I, I i know what i'm capable of and i just want to live with love and i told you the other day i want to i want to live with an open heart i want to live with empathy and i want to inspire others and that's really my goal as i wake up every single day of my life and you know through design through martial arts and through uh, massage therapy um, i've actually been able to like turn my passions into reality and, mm. and live that way
0: that's absolutely beautiful, man That's so inspiring to hear, thank you, yeah. how do we live? how do we cultivate an open heart
1: yeah I mean you know, that's a really good question. I mean talking about it um, let me ask you how do, how would, how would you I, i'm I have a feeling you live with an open heart how do you, how do you do it
0: well it's not always open that's uh-huh. for sure, and I think a big part of it is the For me, meditation practice. And Mm. it's the meditation practice of feeling your emotions, right? It's the meditation practice of, wow, there's anger here. Let me see if I can open my heart inside of this. As much as my heart wants to close right now, can I open this? There's fear, rejection. Oh, there it is. Beautiful. Welcome and welcome it, right? It's not pushing it away. It's not acting upon it. It's remaining equanimous with what is there and then living with that open heart. But it really involves just being present, Mm -hmm. right? I think opening your heart mastering love is the same thing as mastering the present moment right whatever you are with washing dishes in jujitsu right whatever you are doing in the present moment is the most important thing because that is all that there is and so learning to master the present moment is really a process of learning love Mm -hmm. and just being with your body and being with even that that cultivating that balance that masculine and feminine sure right
1: yeah you know as you're talking i was thinking A lot of people live with resentment and I think, um, the opposite of an open heart is resentment and hate, right. And judgment. I heard a a while ago that resentment is like drinking the poison and hoping the other person dies. Mm. So yeah, resentment is like drinking the poison and hoping the other person dies. And I have to consistently practice letting go and surrendering my resentment towards people, whenever it comes up, because that allows me to put myself in their shoes, see my part in, in, in whatever I'm being resentful for and judging that person for. What's my part in this? What, how can, how can I put myself in their shoes? How can I uh, understand where they're coming from? And, you know, um, not too long ago I had a friend do do something that I I didn't really love. And we stopped uh, talking and I started praying for him. And not just praying for him, I prayed that he got everything that he wanted in life. And I remember posting on my Instagram story that, you know, after my meditation that morning, it's, I said, it's easy to wish well and pray for the people who do you right. It's really hard to pray and love the people who do you wrong and I think there's so much beauty in in that in in finding good no matter what mm. and not holding on to that resentment yeah. that's another way to open the heart
0: yeah and that's the uh, that's the practice of meta loving kindness, which is first just getting that heart to open right just letting that love flow and then can you bring in An individual, maybe who you love, maybe a pet. Oh, there it is. There's that love. But then can you bring in a difficult person or situation and keep that heart open, right? There's all that anger that comes up. And just like with resentment, drinking that poison, I noticed that in my own life, when I'm angry at somebody, there is nothing that that anger is doing to justify that situation at all whatsoever. And all it's doing is hurting me. It's just making me feel uncomfortable and constricting my flow and taking my joy out of life. And I can come, that anger come, that comes with it are all these like mental fantasies of things that you want to do or things that you wish would happen to them or just like all this ill will that you have towards this other person that is only hurting you. It has nothing to do with them and everything to do with what's going on inside of you, right? Yeah. So becoming a, a man, a gentleman, is really learning to navigate your emotional triggers. When you are angry, that is your responsibility yeah. and nobody else's.
1: Yeah. And in turn, I, I really feel. Um, that anger and resentment and judgment fuel addiction, um, to anything. Um, I think that addiction, uh, it's our way of not just numbing, but creating a homeostasis within our bodies, um, getting back to a quote unquote normal feeling mm-hmm. because You know we're scared. We want to feel not scared. We're happy, and we were talking about this the other day. Sometimes when I'm happy, I don't want to allow myself to be happy because there's a long history of me not thinking that I deserve happiness, and I wanted to punish myself. So if I was happy, or if I was getting a raise, or you know I I did something really great, I would, I would um, reward myself by furthering the addiction. And it, which in turn actually re-traumatizes the body and creates those pathways in your brain that aren't healthy. And I think you were talking about um, the, the, the physiological um, uh, effects of, of addiction and, and everything. And I think that uh, through, my, through my years of chronic of therapy and we talk about the, the pathways and how we're forging these, these behaviors um, each time that we resort to uh, masturbating or acting out or, or doing whatever, and we don't wanna be doing these things. And the more times that we don't do those things, we're creating new pathways. And I think that's so crazy that we, we're actually able to retrain our brains mm-hmm. physically and emotionally.
0: Yeah, and it's almost like when you say no to a craving of addiction, you take back a piece of your power, right? You feel energy from that. If you're able to withstand a craving towards an addiction, then all of a sudden that energy fills you up. Right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, I actually did want to talk about, um, I mean, it's kind of a longer story but I'll try to minimize about how I got into design because it was just so interesting. Um, coming from a very trauma filled, um, childhood and uh, kind of just make my way through life. And I was talking about like the decisions I made based on the trauma. And I think it was just really interesting, um, the path that my, my life took. So I'll just quickly just go through it. It's, it's a kind of a cool story. I, um, so I was 24 and my father who worked in the utility company uh, for New York for like 40 years, um, he realized that I really had no direction. So I, I, I went to school. I graduated high school in 1999, and I got a full-ride scholarship to, the, to play lacrosse in '99. and um, through drinking and drugs and, and just uh, circumstances, I failed out, and I lost my scholarship. And from around 2000 to 2004, I had little to no direction in life. I was working odd jobs and um, not really knowing what I wanted to do in life. Um, and my, my father asked me if I wanted to work for the company and I said to him, I, I really have nothing else going on. Um, so I said, yes. And I said, man, I was like, I'm going to be working for this company for 40 years. Like that's where my mind went. Um, and so I started working work for the company and, and, uh, I, I started as a boiler mechanic and I was working in like 120 degree heat and working in these horrible conditions and, very labor intensive and kind of working with people that weren't, you know, the best of, uh, uh, you know, uh, people to be around. They, they enabled uh, my addiction because they were they were they had the same things going on as well. It, it became very clear. And uh, it's interesting when you put out a certain energy, you attract a certain energy. Um, and that's the energy that I, I attracted. I attracted uh, addicts and I attracted sex addicts, especially. Um, and so from 2004 to 2007, I was a boiler mechanic. And uh, in 2005, I met my ex wife. And uh, I was telling you, uh, you know, she had a degree from the University of Michigan. I wanted a degree. So I went back to school in 2006. And I was working full time, going to school full time. And I got my, my associate's degree in, in business management. And in 2007, um, while I was working on my business manage- management degree, um, I went to my my head boss and I said, "You know, I have asthma. I can't breathe in these conditions. Is there anything else I can do?" And she was like, "Well, can you use a computer?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And so um, I got a job as an administrative clerk in the headquarters of the company in New York City. And through that job, I started working for this woman. Who was like the polar opposite of me? She was like five foot tall, seventy years old, and here comes like this rough boiler mechanic, like blue collar worker in this office setting. And then I didn't know my I didn't know anything about office work. And she kind of like you know polished me up and taught me about corporate America. And um, she was the head of communications, and so she would uh, tell me, "Hey, can you bring this up to the art department?" And I would go do bring up. Papers and directions for the art department for projects to work on. And every time I'd go up there, I would say, you know, I love, I love like this environment. It's so cool. Like Apple computers and and, like everybody looks smart and all these things. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And so from that point on, design was exactly what I wanted to do as a passion. And it has just taken me from that point on, I went, I got my associates in business management and then went to school for graphic design. When I graduated in 2011, I got a, an internship. Actually, I founded a workshop with a guy named Milton Glazer. And he's like the greatest um, graphic designer in the world. Uh, he just passed away in 2020. Um, and he, uh, him and I just kind of forged a bond and we um, just became close. And I got a three month internship with him. In New York City, and it was through this internship that just kind of catapulted me into like uh, the design world and having his name on my resume. And it was just so crazy for me to start getting design jobs after I left the company and being in the design world in this in this in corporate America and coming from such a background that it came from. It was such a beautiful transition. And it started showing me what I was actually capable of doing. And I, I don't take that lightly. I'm very grateful for for where I am today and how I got there and all the work that I put in, not just professionally, but spiritually. I think it's indicative of, of where I am today. And I don't take it lightly. I'm, I just want to just say that I'm very grateful yeah. for life and where I, I've come from.
0: Yeah. And I think to kind of just like close this off, if there's anybody out there who's like, looking for their purpose or their passion, would you have anything to recommend? Like a younger man out there? You know, I think one of
1: the, yeah, sure. One of the greatest things that Milton Glazer taught me was he sat me down and he, he looked at me right in the eye and he said, don't do it for the money. Don't ever do anything for the money. If you do it, if you do it for the money, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Do it for the passion and the love of it And the money will follow because Mm. people will connect with you. If you're doing things for the right reason, I think this goes across the board for anything that you're doing in life. If you're doing it for the right reasons and with the right intentions and with an open heart, like we were just talking about, people will respond to it. They'll connect with you. Just like I've connected with Mm. you, you know, like we've connected because you're not trying to sell me on anything. You're speaking your truth. You're speaking from your heart. And that's, If anything, that that would be my piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Always come from the heart, and try to connect with people. Don't even try to connect with people. Just speak your truth, and people will connect with you.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, man. And any final thoughts or ruminations?
1: Um, Yeah, just be good to each other, you know. And uh, I think I think I've said it all. I mean, I was I was I, I did my meditation this morning, and meditate. I think meditation is such a huge um, gift that you can give yourself breath work and sound baths and meditation and community and building community around, uh, mental health. Um, but I was, I was walking, I did my walk after the media, after my meditation and I was just thinking about how much love I have in my heart and how it wasn't always like that. And it was kind of bringing me to a tear. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was like, wow, like you, you've put in the work. Mm. You've done this and nobody did this for you. You decided to sift through the trials and tribulations that life has thrown at you. And you've wrote, you've risen above those things and you've created a life worth living. And you're able to like actually look yourself in the mirror and love yourself and love others.
0: Mm. Brian, thank you so much. How can we find you? Social media, yeah. Instagram. I'm on Instagram. Uh, yeah.
1: I've deleted Facebook. I don't, I don't really like Facebook, but uh, Instagram is at, at underscore surrender to the flow underscore. And my website is brianmendezdesign.com. Brian with a Y.
0: Awesome. And be on the lookout for that book, correct? Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. And if any of you are uh, tuning in, you can also follow the Instagram page, Christopher underscore Lincolnbach, And we will catch you all in the next one, right? Peace. Thank you.